0: This is Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, a series of interviews that explores the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This conversation was recorded on Facebook Live on Friday, October 1st at 2.30 p.m. On this episode of Just Conversations, Dean Douglas speaks with Richard Rothstein, Distinguished Fellow of the Economic Policy Institute. Dean Douglas and Dr. Rothstein will discuss his book, The Color of Law, which outlines America's history of intentional state-sanctioned segregation that produced unfair housing practices, the racial wealth gap, and continued discrimination against people of color in our nation.
1: So I want to jump right into this conversation and begin about this issue of history. Here we are in a time when the discussion of how we tell our nation's story and live into our history is being contested and has become a source of division. Yet in your book, The Color of Law, you have said that, and I quote you, if young people are not taught an accurate account of how we come to be a segregated nation, then their generation will have little chance of doing a better job than the previous ones. When it comes, indeed, the issues of systemic structural, if not cultural racism and anti-Blackness. The first step toward providing an accurate account of segregation is, in one sense, taking on the historical myths, uh, such as the myth that you take on of de facto segregation. Can you speak to this mythical reality of de facto segregation and why it's essential to break that myth if indeed we're going to be a racially just nation?
2: Sure. We're a segregated society. I've lived in many metropolitan areas in this country. Everyone that I've lived in had clearly defined areas that are all white, mostly white, all black, mostly black. Most of us think that's too bad that we live in such a segregated uh, country. But we've adopted a rationalization, an excuse, a myth, as you called it, that excuses us from doing anything about it. Of course, I say we think it's too bad. We hope that it'll evolve away from that. We think of various policies that might or might not ameliorate it a little bit. But the myth that we have is that this all happened naturally. The reason we're segregated was just an accident of of bigotry. Private homeowners or or landlords wouldn't sell to African-Americans in white neighborhoods or maybe... Uh, builders, uh, bankers, uh, the uh, real estate agents uh, discriminated in how they carried out their pr- purely private sector activities. Uh, people, we tell ourselves, just like to live with each other, the same race. We feel more comfortable that way. Uh, and that's why we're segregated. Or maybe it's just uh, a question of income differences. Uh, African Americans, on average, not all, but on average, have lower incomes than whites. And so, Many African-Americans can't afford to move to higher opportunity neighborhoods. All these individual bigoted but private sector uh, activities, uh, self-choice, economic differences is what's caused our racial segregation. Like I say, we tell ourselves that what happened by accident can only happen by accident. This is an other myth. Of course, there was private bigotry. Of course, there are some people who choose to live in in, uh, the same race neighborhoods. Uh, Of course there are income differences, but the reason that we're such a segregated neighborhood is because of 20th century explicit federal, state, and local policies that ensured that African Americans and whites could not live near one another, and that ensured that that private bigotry would be expressed and not suppressed. Uh, That's a myth Uh, uh, that that, uh, it happened by accident. We call this de facto segregation. Something that just happened, in fact, not in rule law or regulation or policy. My book, The Color of Law, documents the federal, state, and local policies uh, that created this segregation, that sustained it, that reinforced it, and that uh, enabled and really promoted that private bigotry to flourish. Uh, And let me say the reason, let me add, the reason it's so important is because it was federal state and local policy it's a constitutional violation it's a civil rights violation if state and local governments were doing it it's a 14th amendment violation if a federal government was doing it it was a fifth amendment violation if any form of government was doing it it was a 13th amendment violation and when we have a civil rights violation we have an obligation an obligation to undo it to redress it simply hoping it will go away is a, uh, an abandonment of our constitutional responsibilities as citizens of this country. So knowing the history is essential because knowing the history establishes an obligation, not simply a wish uh, that segregation uh, is addressed.
1: No, I so appreciate the way in which uh, you make clear that uh, segregation uh, is not simply something that happened to happen, uh, but uh, was intentional on many levels of our government, but particularly our federal government through, and you go through uh, quite carefully, redlining uh, the uh, FHA laws, et cetera. And, and even the GI Bill, which I remember from my uh, own father uh, and his brother, they just weren't able to take advantage. Uh, of the GI Bill as as African-Americans, as uh, many whites were able to do. One of the things that this has led to, and you uh, speak of, again, uh, so cogently in the color of law, is what many are talking about, and that is the wealth gap and the way in which housing segregation obviously uh, is related to and leads to a generational wealth gap. But what I particularly uh, find insightful and illuminating is your book is the way in which you relate this generational wealth gap to what I have come to describe through reading your book as a generational choice gap. And so that as you trace it through one family, I believe it's the Stevensons, that the choices of one generation that are limited, even if they've made the best choices available to them, limit the choices for the next generation. Uh, Can you speak to that?
2: Sure. Uh, Let me describe uh, how the wealth gap was created or reinforced and exacerbated in this country. In the post World War II period, and you referred to your father, a, I assume a veteran of World War II, um, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration embarked on a program to suburbanize the entire white working class and the middle class population, returning war veterans like your father as well as others, to suburbanize them into single family homes in all white suburbs. This was a racially explicit program of the federal government. At the time, we were not a suburban country. I know that's hard to imagine today. But at the time, middle class and working class families, white and black, were living in urban areas. They were living in urban areas because we were a manufacturing economy. Uh, The factories had to be located near deep water ports and railroad terminals to get their parts, ship their final products. And the banks, the other uh, service industries that service those manufacturing centers had to be located there, too. And the middle class and working class uh, workers who worked in these factories and other service industries had to be able to walk to work or take short streetcar rides. They didn't have automobiles. We were an urban country. As I say, the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration embarked on a um, racially explicit policy to uh, suburbanize only, <coughs> excuse me, the white population into single-family homes in all white suburbs. <coughs> Sorry. You mentioned a, a family I describe in the book uh, that uh, an African American family, uh, the, um, the head of the family, Frank Stevenson, uh, worked in a, a Ford Motor plant in a black neighborhood in, in Richmond, California. Uh, it was located right on a port so it could get their parts and ship their final products. And when the highways came to be built and factories moved out of that uh, uh, seaport, uh, the um, the United the Workers, the um, uh, union that represented the Ford workers, negotiated an agreement that when that Ford plant moved to the suburbs, uh, all the workers could get their jobs. The Ford plant moved fifty miles away from where the workers were then located in, in um, Oakland and Richmond, California. The white workers were able to move because the Federal Housing Administration was uh, subsidizing homes for white families in the area, in the suburban area where this factory was located. The African-American family was prohibited from uh, moving to these suburban areas. uh, the the man I profiled, Mr. Stevenson, Frank Stevenson, was able to keep his job only by organizing a carpool of uh, seven workers. They bought a van and they drove this 50 miles uh, each way. Uh, to their um, jobs in order to keep their jobs. It was the only way they could do it. Most of the black workers couldn't keep their jobs in this situation. This was a racially explicit policy, I say, of the Federal Housing Administration. The builders of these projects uh, could never have assembled the capital to build uh, large suburbs uh, uh, on their own. No bank would be crazy enough to lend them the money. Banks thought that these suburban developments uh, wouldn't uh, pencil out. They didn't think that anybody would want to move to them because we were an urban country. The only way that these developers, and they were all over the country, I don't mean to imply they're just on the West Coast, the biggest one probably was uh, in New York, uh, east of New York City, Levittown. Levittown, right. Yeah, that builder um, could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 homes in one place. The only way he could build it, was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, uh, submitting his plans for the development, including uh, a commitment that they required him to make, never to sell a home to an African-American. The FHA even required this builder and others to uh, place a clause in the deed of every home, prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. These were inexpensive homes. Uh, they sold at the time for eight, dollars $9,000. and today's money, that's about $100,000. Uh, as you know, those homes and suburbs all over the country, whether it's in that suburb of Richmond, California, um, uh, Milpitas, and now what's the what's Silicon Valley, or whether it's in the um, east of New York City or anywhere in between, hundreds and hundreds of these projects, thousands really, in metropolitan areas all over the country, the homes now sell for $300,000, dollars $500,000. Yeah. The white families who purchased those homes for $100,000 gained over the next couple of generations, and this is what your question went to, wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, um, the, that wealth uh, came from the appreciation and the value of their homes. They used that in- equity from the appreciation to send their children to college. They used it to take care of perhaps... A temporary emergencies, a medical emergency, temporary unemployment. They used it to subsidize their retirements. And to get to your point, they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited, prohibited from um, participating in this wealth-generating exercise. The result is that on average today, African American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. There's a whole story about that. I don't have time to go into it now, but there's a small chapter in The Color of Law that describes in part how that happened. But you would think that if African Americans have incomes that are about 60% of white incomes, family incomes on average, they'd have wealth at about 60% of white household wealth. But the reality is that while there's a 60% income ratio, there's a 5%. Wealth ratio. African-American households have 5% of the wealth that white households have. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the um, uh, mid-20th century. And let me say, this was not the action in the FHA or VA of rogue bureaucrats who were uh, personally bigoted. They, they were, of course, but the uh, This was written out in federal housing policy, dating from the New Deal, dating from the Roosevelt administration, the underwriting manual that the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration distributed to appraisers all over the country, whose job it was to evaluate uh, the applications of builders to build these single-family suburban subdivisions. The underwriting manual said you could not recommend for a federal bank guarantee a project that was going to include African-Americans and a white project. The manual went so far as to say that you couldn't even recommend for a federal bank guarantee, a project that was going to be all white. It was going to be located near where African-Americans were living because in the words of the manual, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal policy manual said. This notion of de facto segregation, this utter nonsense, There's no basis in reality to it whatsoever. Had that manual instead said you could not recommend for a federal bank guarantee any development that was not going to be non-discriminatory, we would have integrated suburbs throughout this country. Uh, We would have um, African-American family wealth that was much closer to white family wealth, not entirely because there is an income ratio, um, but much closer to white family wealth uh, than we have today. Um, of course there was private bigotry on the part of these builders. But if the federal housing policy had been to require federal bank guaranteed developments to be non-discriminatory, our country would look very different today. That's an unconstitutional policy that created these suburbs. It's an unconstitutional policy that created the wealth gap. And all of us as American citizens have an obligation to remedy it because it's a violation of constitutional rights.
1: And I want to get uh, to to those r- remedies uh, in a minute. What's interesting here is, of course, all of the implications, which you so well point out, of this wealth gap. We're talking about educational uh, implications. Uh, uh, we're talking about health uh, implications, which clearly uh, were evinced as these sort of two pandemics of Uh, COVID came together with the pandemic of white racism, anti-Blackness in this country, creating these comorbidities that are such a reflection of this generational uh, government-driven segregation and wealth gap that you're speaking of that leads to the health comorbidities that have impacted the African-American community, as well as the fact that we know that uh, economically african americans didn't have the same level of savings for instance that would allow them to uh weather uh it, it, weather the pandemic uh in 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 a more life-sustaining way and so this is something that, continues to have ramifications, as you well point out, and suggest that only, and I I quote you, only African Americans have been systematically and unconstitutionally segregated for such a long period. It was such thorough repression, as you said, that the condition requires an aggressive constitutional remedy. You use the word remedy as opposed to reparations. I want to ask why and what might those remedies be?
2: Well, the term reparations is misunderstood by most people, and so I don't use it because uh, I don't want to use a term that is misunderstood by most people. I want to explain this to most people so that they can participate in a new civil rights movement that can redress segregation, that can enact remedies. Most people, they hear the term reparations, they think it's a single monetary payment to the current generation of African-Americans. Even if that happened, which is inconceivable, it would be a token monetary payment. It would not be enough to, uh, uh, you know, we're talking, I just talked about the wealth gap. It's the difference between $100,000 and $500,000 and the gain of wealth from home ownership. No reparations program is ever going to be of that magnitude. Um, So what I talk about is remedies because there are many, many policies that we should be following, racially explicit policies. Not dancing around the the term, Um, we have a constitutional obligation uh, to remedy uh, the the segregation of African-Americans, and we need racial explicit policies to redress it. Uh, I know we don't have much time, but let me just say this. Uh, In the 1850s, a period when we were as racially divided as we are today, uh, the Supreme Court uh, issued a decision that... uh, misrepresented the history of uh, uh, African-American subjugation. Uh, It claimed, it was called the Dred Scott decision. Uh, It claimed that African-Americans had no right to citizenship because uh, uh, when the Constitution was adopted, there were no African-American citizens. This was uh, other nonsense. It's similar to the nonsense that's being spouted by the Supreme Court today. Uh, African-Americans voted. Uh, when they were not slaves uh, in the uh, referenda that adopted the Constitution in 1787. Um, So this was a flawed history the Supreme Court spouted, and racial justice advocates at the time, those opponents of the extension of slavery, abolitionists, defied the the, the, the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. Laws were passed in explicit defiance of the Supreme Court Uh, People took action. Abraham Lincoln, who was a a private citizen, uh, gave a speech in which he said that if he were a member of Congress at that time, he would vote to prohibit the the extension of slavery uh, into the territories, even though the Supreme Court said he couldn't do it. We need the same kind of backbone today. In 2007, the thing that stimulated me to start this book, the Supreme Court issued a decision in which it promoted this de facto nonsense. It prohibited the school districts of Louisville and Seattle from enacting very token desegregation plans uh, on the basis of the fact that the cities of Louisville and Seattle were segregated de facto without any government participation. It was a totally fictional history that that, uh, the Supreme Court recounted. the The controlling decision opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, The the city, the districts of Louisville and Seattle, were were, um, told to stop. They're very trivial desegregation programs. If the superintendents of the school districts of Louisville and Seattle had the backbone that racial justice advocates had in the 1850s, they would have continued their program in defiance of the Supreme Court. And we need to enact many, many more remedies that uh, defy the Supreme Court, racially explicit remedies, because we're never going to uh, redress the segregation that we've created without uh, being as explicit in reforming it as we were in creating it. You are
1: talking about a history in this country that many in this country don't want to hear. A history that will help us to cross the divides and become the nation, as Lincoln said, that lives into its better angels. But we are in a period of time when history itself and the way in which we tell it has become one of the most divisive issues in this country. How Richard, if I may, do we lead across the differences? How do you lead across the differences? So to find, as you say, some common understanding of our history that will a Indeed, allow us to redress the kind of racial inequities and inequalities that have prevented us from being the democracy
2: we claim to be. Well, uh, I disagree with one thing you said. I think people want to hear this history. They are surprised when they hear it. They are surprised when they read it. They say, "I didn't learn this in school. How come?" Uh, one of the first things that racial justice advocates could should do new civil rights groups that are created in communities all over the country, one of the first things they should do is conduct a campaign to reform their school district's curriculum so that it teaches this history accurately. Um, There's no reason why that can't be done. I'm working with a a group of national civil rights leaders to create something we call a new movement to redress racial segregation, uh, residential segregation, Um, we uh, uh, have a curriculum unit that can be used and it's being used by some 70,000 teachers around the country now, uh, but not uh, adopted by many school districts. Uh, There are many other uh, correct and good um, curriculum units as well that teach this history accurately. The 1619 Project uh, has material along these lines. So people want to hear this. Uh, They have been, um, they're uh, angered by the fact that uh, they were lied to in school Uh, when they uh, were taught the history of segregation. In the course of my book, The Color of Law, and I report on this, I looked at all the textbooks that are commonly used now to teach American history. They all promote this nonsense of de facto segregation. They talk about the great work that the FHA did in suburbanizing the country without ever mentioning, without ever mentioning that African-Americans were excluded. So um, I think people want to hear this history. Uh, We need to... uh, Promote it as much as possible so that people learn an accurate account of uh, the history. And uh, I think if we do that, the next generation, as you began by saying, will be uh, in a position to uh, uh, do better than we have in redressing it.
1: So I... uh, uh... Let's hope that, in fact, uh, we can all, I can share your optimism as we're in this environment of uh, critical race theory and and the debates about trying to talk about our racialized uh, history and racialized past. So if we can get beyond that and begin to really sit with who we are and who we want to be and bring some of these remedies to bear. What, from your vantage point then, would a just society look like?
2: Well, I'm not interested in a just society. I'm interested in a juster society. Mm. I'm not a Pollyannish. I don't think this is going to be fixed quickly. It took a long time to create it. It's going to take a long time to fix it. So I'm looking at the small steps that local people can take to begin the process of redress. Hopefully, it will grow and uh, will take more significant steps. Uh, we're not cr- going to create a just society in my lifetime. Probably not even in yours, young lady. That's, that's right. <laughs> I <laughs> um, wish I were that young. <laughs> it's going to take. It's going to take a while. And they're, uh, I'm working on a new book uh, on uh, what we can do to. to uh, redress segregation, how we can create local civil rights groups that could take concrete steps to, to uh, redress it. And um, that's my focus. Uh, we have, it'll, we'll have to see how a just society evolves, but we certainly can create a juster society by beginning to tackle the unconstitutional segregation that we've created.
1: Thank you. As Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, popularized the... Uh... Phrase from Theodore Parker, we can all at least get on the arc that bends toward justice. And but that we would indeed do that. Thank you so much, Mr. Richard Rothstein, not only for this conversation, but for your work that is indeed helping us to get on the arc that bends toward justice as we take more seriously the truth of who we are and how we got here. I thank all of you for joining us today and I invite you to be with us on Thursday as uh, we dialogue with uh, Dr. Khalil Muhammad uh, about the 1619 project and his essays that are his essay that is a part of that project. Please, Check our website uh, for information to register for that. Thank you again, and thank you,
2: Mr. Rothstein. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for listening to
0: Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas. These 30-minute conversations are featured on the EDS at Union Facebook page. Videos are also available on the Union YouTube page. The Audio Edition can be found wherever you stream podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share.